Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Uh, my name is James Saperstein, and the show is entitled Enhancing Human Life Perspectives from a CEO. I'm the chairman and CEO of Azure RX Biopharma, and here with me today is Doug Jensen. Doug uh, is the former CEO of Springbank Pharmaceuticals, but also an investor in our company. Uh, Doug, maybe you can give a few words about yourself. Sure. Uh yeah, as James mentioned, uh, I've been in the biotech industry for about 25 years. I was CEO uh, and the founder of Springbank Pharmaceuticals uh, until 2016. Um, I've been an active investor in Azurex for a number of, for the last couple of years and uh, have known James actually for four or five years. So part of my rationale for investing in the company was my uh, relationship with James and and my knowledge of his career. Um, excited to be part of it uh, and and see the directions that uh, he's taking the company today. Uh, I uh, my background in biotech uh, has um, enabled me to look at the company from the perspective of its assets, but also its development plans and and the the markets that the company is in. Uh, I think the company has some excellent technologies and some uh, important uh, milestones that will be coming up in the relatively near term that I think is going to significantly enhance shareholder value. So I'll just leave it at that today and let James move on and, and give give more details about the programs. Sure. Thanks, Doug. And uh, I'd like to also give a little bit of my background because it's relevant to Azure X. And uh, I've been in, around for a long time, a pharmacist with an MBA, so 37 years in the industry. But I started with Eli Lilly, and that has some particular ref, uh, ref relevance as to why I joined Azure X. So I spent 17 years in Big Pharma, Roche, Bristol Myers Squibb, then went small to Gilead, where I got my first taste of biotech, and then I, I went off and ran. Uh, the, uh, the metabolic and endocrinology division at Serono uh, in Boston, also which has relevance to what we're doing here at IZRX because we are in, in metabolic disease um, and endocrinological disease. Uh, from there, I went off uh, to work in venture capital, started a company called Tabira, which we sold uh, to Allergan back in 2016 for $1.7 billion and uh, then did a series of other companies, always kind of intermingling between the uh, virology space, but also the gastroenterology space because of NASH and you know, we looked at hepatitis B. Um, and then uh, I got a call to look at AzureRx and uh, their main product is MSAT19. Uh, and I started taking a look at it and, and started recalling back to my early days at Lilly when we were out promoting insulin at the time Insulin had been um, out there in the marketplace for about 85 to 90 years. And basically it was porcine derived insulin. And for the kosher people, it was beef uh, derived insulin. Uh, so it was an animal product. And over the years, uh, people uh, started getting resistance to some of these, these, these animal derived insulins. And you'd have to take more and more uh, insulin every single day uh, to keep up, to keep the results that they needed. And MSAT-19 is in a similar market. While it's not the insulin market, it will compete against porcine-derived, uh, uh, what we call PERTs, the porcine 
derived enzymatic replacement therapy for patients with cystic fibrosis or chronic or acute pancreatitis. With Lilly, we came out with human insulin, human insulin, which at the time came from recombinant DNA, was grown in vats, uh, you know, taken from E. coli. And a lot of the endocrinologists were kind of resistant. Well, why would we want to replace something that's been working for 80, 80 plus years, 85 years with something that's human insulin, you know, that comes from DNA of, of E. coli? Well, you know, likewise, with, with uh, and, and I can tell you the human insulin in two years became the mainstay, it completely replaced porcine derived uh, insulin. Likewise, the, the market right now in PERP uh, is crushed up pink pancreas and the lead com uh, compounds are AbbVie and, uh, and now Nestle. Uh, and AbbVie, for instance, sells about $1.5 billion a year and, and Creon, which is the main, the main product and the number one product in the marketplace. But again, it's crushed up pig pancreas. And so uh, they crush them up, they put it in capsules, and these patients have to take anywhere from 25 to 60, 40, 60 capsules a day, and they become resistant. Um, we are uh, derived from yeast. Uh, we're gonna be much more humanized. Uh, it's not an animal-derived product. We believe we can get away with far less capsule, maybe eight to 16 capsules as opposed to 25 to 40 capsules per day. Uh, and that, when I looked at this uh, before I joined the company, I said, yeah, this makes sense. This is, should be an easy, an easy product to replace. Um, but, you know, we, the company had been funded from quarter to quarter. Uh, we needed to go out and find so, some funding. Uh, so those are the kind of things we did. So the first six months, we spent a lot of time with cleanup, quite frankly, uh, reducing our debt. We had a lot of debt. Um, and trying to raise some capital. Uh, last year, uh, in December of last year, I decided also to look at other gastroenterology products because I don't believe you know, being a one-shot deal, which is one product, MS-1819 is healthy for any company. So we talked to a private company called First Wave. Uh, ironically, the, the, the CEO and founder of First Wave is an old friend of mine. I've known uh, Gary Glick for about 45 years that so we took organic chemistry together. Uh, he actually uh, became a PhD in organic chemistry out of University of Michigan. And um, he's quite the prolific inventor. And he has an old product called Niclosamide, which was being repurposed uh, for ulcerative colitis and other types of GI uh, effects. And we started talking early last year and we finally struck a deal at the end of December. Uh, also, as a throw-in, Niclosamide happens to work against COVID-19. So um, we just launched a trial for COVID-19. Um, I, I can talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. And uh, also, we are about to launch a trial for checkpoint inhibitor colitis. So with all that said, we've got three shots on goal. Uh, Doug, I guess uh, my question to you, I know I've done a lot of talking just as an intro, but as an investor, um, how, well, let's go back before we get to the investor part. As a, as a CEO, how do you feel about multiple shots on goal? I mean, how do you feel about the company? What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, well, when, when, when I first invested in the company, of course, you, you had, you know, one product in development, um, MS-1819. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the Opportunity there was very obvious for, to me at the beginning because because of the reasons that you laid out. The, you know, the standard of care was the perts, and the opportunity to 
um, derive this uh, product from yeast and to reduce the pill burden and actually enhance the, the, the uh, ethic, efficacy um, you know, was significant to me. It's a large market um, and, and it needs a new, new entry into that market to better serve the patients. But I always felt vulnerable because it's a, it's a, it, it, you were somewhat of a one trick pony and that's always dangerous because we know the development pathway can be difficult, it can be long, you can, you can experience um, setbacks along the way. So in my view, going out and finding uh, a, a, a new drug like glucosamide was uh, you know, a no brainer. Um, I think the opportunities against COVID are significant um, and uh, important, clearly, um, in our current environment. I, I personally know of uh, a number of people, one of whom lives right below me in, in our uh, apartment building, um, who's suffering from uh, continual GI issues related to his COVID infection. So, uh, and, it's, and this is not uncommon. We, I have another friend. Uh, from New Jersey, who also suffers the same thing. So this was a, a, a you know a, a good opportunity. I think you got a, a, a good deal uh, for shareholders, and and I'm excited about seeing the results of these uh, ongoing um, clinical trials and the clinical trials that you'll launch later this year. Oh, thanks for that. Um, so let, let me address the COVID piece, and eventually I'll come back to MSC 219. But yeah, we're we're pretty excited. We we did our research. Uh, and found that uh, almost half of patients who have been infected with COVID have GI uh, issues, but also positive COVID RNA in their stools. There, there was a study out of Arizona State University where they, they did a test and now it's been published in Nature Magazine. And uh, as, as this uh, pandemic unfolds, uh, and Gary and I talked about that a lot when we we're doing the deal, uh, we always thought that uh, this virus is not going to go away. Um, the vaccines are one thing. The vaccines will stem it. Uh, it'll, it'll stop uh, the pandemic, but it'll still be an epidemic, uh, which is a, you know, a little different word. But uh, so what does that mean? You're going to see pockets around the world where uh, uh, COVID will still be out of control. Um, what we know, I know in my, my field from virology is that um, this, is, this is almost like the perfect virus. It, it keeps mutating. Uh, when I started first working on the COVID task force, um, we had two or three variants in the first month. So that was really quick. Um, now I can tell you there's over a hundred and uh, we, we almost can't keep track. And, and some of them are less virulent than others. Uh, some of them are more virulent, like the one you're seeing in India, which is a double, double variant, as they call it, a double mutation. Um, so you can believe as the, the pandemic or, or the outbreak gets more and more out of control in India, I, I promise you, you're going to see another variant come up, uh, a, a second, and a third, and a fourth, and that's what's going to happen. Uh, these things are not reported in the media because they don't want to panic everyone around the world, but uh, this is going to happen. So the question is, the vaccines can stem the tide for sure and help put the brakes on it. But in order to stop the vehicle altogether, we're going to need therapeutics and we're going to need drugs to drug our way out of this. Uh, same thing was with, with, uh, with HIV. Back in the day, I worked in HIV. Uh, I actually was part of the second drug launch uh, with DDC or HIBIT 
when I was a Roche and I helped launch the first protease inhibitor back in 95, um, everyone was talking about vaccines. And I used to argue with a lot of the key opinion leaders, uh, God rest his soul, David Cooper, one of my favorites out of Australia, who was working on a therapeutic vaccine at the time. And I, I told him, you know, we're going to have to drug our way out of it. And uh, I believe in HIV we have. I mean, it's basically uh, today's generation doesn't have to worry about dying of HIV. You can have pretty much a controlled life for the rest of your life. You can live a normal life. You take one or two pills a day uh, and you're fine. Um, likewise, I think that's what's going to happen with COVID. COVID is not going away, but we have to get these therapeutics in place to control it. Um, we hope, uh, based on our product, Niclosamide, which is a non-systemic drug, it doesn't get absorbed uh, other than in the GI tract and basically will help flush out a lot of, uh, you know, no pun intended, a lot of the virus. Uh, and then it will decrease the amount of uh, GI effects and diarrhea specifically that patients have. Um, we do know that uh, the Institute of Pasteur Korea tested all the repurposed drugs and niclosamide, uh, which has been around uh, for, for 50 years, it's an antiparasitic, um, tested very well against uh, all, all the other panels. In fact, uh, against remdesivir, specifically the Gilead drug that's been approved, uh, it's got a 40-fold increase uh, in effect of in efficacy over remdesivir. So we're quite confident that it's going to work. Uh, we just have to get this trial moving uh, and uh, we hope that our first patient in uh, any, anytime soon. Uh, what's hurting us right now getting patients in is that there's less COVID in the United States and it keeps shifting from state to state. So we're trying to stay ahead of it and, and trying to, we got pretty strict criteria as the FDA to bring people in. So uh, we thought we were gonna have our first patient in this week, but I think we're gonna have to wait another week or two uh, to, to enroll a patient. But once we start getting patients in, it should start going fairly quickly. Uh, but thanks for that, Doug. Uh, we're, we're pretty confident about uh, this utilization of niclosamide. And um, if, if it works, and we believe it will, that should help us strike our first deal uh, with, with a pharmaceutical company. Uh, we also licensed it in uh, for uh, checkpoint inhibitor colitis. And uh, for people who are listening to this program, uh, if they don't know what checkpoint inhibitors are, checkpoint inhibitors are anti-cancer drugs, uh, Obdivo, Ervoy, you've probably seen uh, the TV commercials, Keytruda, and they're excellent drugs and uh, they're being used far more often. Right now you're looking at about 265,000 people in the US uh, that are on these drugs for cancer, um, miraculous drugs actually, um, and some of the top sellers in, in, in the world, or especially in this country. However, one of the side effects that people get is diarrhea. They get a lot of GI effects, uh, but over a quarter of, of patients get this. And unfortunately, while they have to be on therapy from six to 10 weeks with their checkpoint inhibitors, um, within a couple of weeks, they'll start seeing diarrhea. And if it gets severe, they actually can possibly be hospitalized or it can turn into colitis and uh, even worse. And then uh, they have to go off the drug. So, what do you do? Do you get off the drug and risk dying of cancer, or do you stay on the drug, put up uh, with the side of you know side effects, so that you can treat the cancer? So uh, we're confident. We we saw some data on proctitis from first wave, so we know it helps diminish uh, some GI effects uh, and especially colitis. 
um, and we decided to license it in for what is an orphan medication, checkpoint inhibitor colitis, and hopefully we can file a 505B2 once the study is done and get ourselves approved uh, fairly quickly. Uh, we are talking to first wave uh, still uh, to, to see, you know, they're doing some work, but to see what else we, we can bring in. Um, so Doug, any questions from you on the checkpoint colitis? I kind of went through quickly. Um, just, uh, I mean, it seems to me there's a sort of a vacuum out there. If these patients are su uh, suffering from this, uh, you know, the GI issues that can progress um, to, you know, dangerous colitis levels. Um, is there anything in the market that's being used at this point to try to, um, you know, mitigate these negative side effects? In fact, there is. What they'll do with some of these patients uh, is they'll, they'll put them on steroids um, and uh, injectable steroids, no less, uh, to get the inflammation down, especially when they go to colitis. Colitis is an inflammation of the bowel, of the colon, small intestine, and, and the large colon. And they'll give them steroids to bring it down. If that doesn't work, they put them on uh, these biologicals like Remicade and whatnot, which you know, uh, number one, they're very expensive, but they're also, uh, you know, it's not something you want to take long term. Uh, so that's what's on the market. Uh, all these drugs are injectable. Uh, what's nice about niclosamide is niclosamide is oral, at least our niclosamide. There's several that are in development, but ours is an oral. It's a micronized version. So uh, in the past, for, to treat parasites, you needed handfuls of niclosamide to be ingested. Now you really, with ours, with the micronized version, it's just a few milligrams uh, and you get enough coverage uh, in, in the colon uh, with, with the micronized version. So yeah, we, we hope to have a huge advantage over uh, you know, what's, what's available. Yeah, and you mentioned the orphan indication. Um, maybe you could explain that uh, a little bit and lay out the timing of that um, so that we can understand you know, sort of the expedited nature of that clinical process. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, so in the US, uh, the FDA, if they see orphan, an orphan disease or a rare disease as they call it, um, they will give you an expedited review. Uh, they realize that uh, there, there are not a lot of patients out there. It's usually 50,000 or less. There's not a, a lot of patients out there. Uh, so they realize because you don't have access to a lot of patients, the studies are not going to be that large either. They're going to be smaller from a statistical perspective uh, in terms of powering, they're going to be smaller uh, and it'll go through an expedited review. So we're going to do the checkpoint inhibitor trial, which is basically a 1B slash 2 to have proof of concept. Now, niclosamide has been on the market for 25 years. It's a very old drug. Uh, huge, huge safety uh, uh, files. I mean, it's just, you know, this drug is very safe. So, you know, we're not going to have to worry about that. The FDA worries about two things before they approve a drug, safety and efficacy. Everything else, they don't, you know, it's minor. Uh, their job is to have a product that works and, but also protects the public. So uh, we're going to file on the orphan because it's less than 50,000 patients that get a checkpoint inhibitor colitis, and that should bring the drug to market faster. We expect we'll finish the trial sometime uh, towards the end of 2022 uh, and then have a discussion with the FDA and see if they uh, wouldn't allow us to do what's called a 505B2 
pathway, which is an accelerated and, and uh, expedited pathway, but also get grant us uh, rare disease indication. So there's two ways to expedite this drug to market. And hopefully we get it on the market sometime in 2023. Right. So yeah, we're excited. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that was important information um, for me to understand is that this drug has been in, used in people for many, many years. You have a great safety profile and also uh, an understanding of its activity profile. So uh, I think that that was a great acquisition for the company. Um, Great. I don't have any other questions at this point about the, the meclosamide. Um, well, thanks, Doug. I, I mean, let me, so you invested on MS-1819. So why, why don't I address a couple of, of things there? Um, and thanks for uh, the overview on meclosamide. Uh, but before I do, do you have any specific questions on, on MS-1819? Because you've been following the story for a while. Well, I, I think it would be get, good to get an overall um, clinical your overview of the clinical plan, um, especially as it relates to the the, um, the the recent amount announcement of the monotherapy trial, and and for your understanding of um, the 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 uh, the data that you achieved, and, and how and your your plan then going forward based on what you know about the drug, the activity profile of the drug from others, from the other studies. I think putting that in perspective would be very helpful. Great, and, and, and thanks for that, because I, I can do this easier in a podcast than I can do uh, in, in a presentation because I can explain it. So let's look at historically, you know, how this drug has been manufactured. It's basically manufactured in a powder form and, and then it was put into capsules. Now. You might remember, I, I did say at the beginning of the podcast that uh, the company was financed quarter to quarter. It really didn't have a, a lot of money. So um, they didn't really sp spend much money on manufacturing. Uh, basically, they thought just like the pig pancreas, which is crushed up into powder form, you put into a capsule and deliver it, uh, you should be able to do the same uh, with our product. But uh, the first trial, which was a phase two trial in pancreatitis, uh, they got what's called a CFA, a coefficient factor. Um, they got a very good one. So I won't get into the particulars of that, but they got a very good number. And they thought that should translate into the same for cystic fibrosis. So before I joined the company, they did a phase two trial in cystic fibrosis. They were trying to reach a CFA of 80% and they missed it. They, they got 57% instead. So uh, at that point, the company was on a, a downward spiral, and, and then I joined after that. Uh, again, minimal amount of money. So one of the things I told our investors, uh, we, need to, we need to invest in, in, in CMC or manufacturing. So uh, I can tell you my very first hire, a couple, other than the CFO, uh, my very first hire was a, a head of manufacturing. Uh, and we've been exploring a lot of things in the meantime, uh, but we did have an enteric capsule that was available to us that we thought, based on some, some laboratory tests that we did, that it would help. Uh, number one, we, we proved that uh, we need a higher pH to, for MS-1819 uh, to be effective. And we thought the enteric capsule was going to be able to deliver the payload of drug based on animal studies that we had done. So... Rather than spend more money on manufacturing, we decided 
And what I mean by more money, about four or five million dollars, which we did not have, we had these enteric capsules, which we tested in, in animals and they, they tested well. Let's go into this monotherapy trial and, and make this happen. So what Doug's alluding to is the option two trial, which we had data that came out uh, in January uh, and frankly was not consistent. That's not what we expected. And that is because the enteric capsule didn't release when we thought it was going to release within the GI tract. So you had patients, a lot of patients actually, who reached a greater than 80% CFA. So we know we have an active drug. So it was a mixed result. Um, so what we decided to do is take a look at the uh, Abbey product and the Nestle product, and they're put into microbeats. Um, and uh, what we found out looking through the literature, I'm not sure why we didn't know this before. So uh, blame, blame me and, you know, for not asking the right question, but uh, Abbey also had a study several, several years ago, Solvay, when it was Solvay, where the powder form was used and also reached uh, 60 to 70% CFA and did not reach the necessary 80% until they did the microbeads. And once they did the microbeads, they achieved greater than 80% CFA. So we're confident once we put our drug in the microbeads and it's costing us a couple of million dollars to do that, uh, we'll be able to do a very small bridging study and show that we achieve 80% CFA and then we, we have a drug again. Whereas right now it's mixed results. We have to make sure it releases correctly in the right part of, of the small intestine, the duodenum, as we call it, uh, where we need the drug to, to be active. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we have our combination trial, which is patients who are refractory uh, with, that, with the, the other PERTs. And uh, we're conducting that trial in Europe right now in Hungary and Turkey. Uh, we've got a couple of patients left, but I, I may come out uh, so you know, if you're surprised with an announcement, you might see something soon uh, to talk about the trial uh, because we, we do have directional knowledge of where we are. Uh, you know, patients, you know, did they improve? And mind you, what you're looking for is CFA. That's what, you know, Wall Street concentrates on. But also the patients have to do better. Uh, less diarrhea, you know, less stools, uh, gain weight. You know, there's a lot of different factors we look at. And in option two, yes, the CFA didn't reach the 80% because of the average of patients taken. But on average, all the patients gained weight, all the patients improved their quality of life in less stools, uh, and that's important. And these patients in combination therapy are very, very, very sick patients. So any improvement we have on them is, is gonna be a success for us. So uh, that's coming soon. So that's the last trial and combination we're gonna do. The file, the next one will be a small bridging study with, with manufacturing. Uh, and I believe we're, we're getting close to, to, to time. So Doug, I'll ask you, you know, do you have any other questions? Just one other question. Uh, you mentioned just in passing a little earlier um, about the company's desire to do um, some kind of a licensing transaction in the future. Can you just give us sort of a, um, a high-level overview of your strategy and, and your thoughts with that regard? Yeah, I mean, I, I was hired to partner MSAT19, you know, to help finish development, but also help partner it out. 
Uh, we have several companies who are in the GI space that are still very interested. They've seen our data. Uh, granted, you know, the market didn't react well to our data, but they did. Um, they, they understand our strategy. They understand what we're doing. Uh, they're still involved. They're still having discussions with us. So I do intend that we're not going to market MSAT-19 ourselves. I do intend to try to strike a deal uh, with a company, but we do need to do this bridging study. We need to completely de-risk the product for big pharma or mid-sized pharma to step in. Uh, Niclosamide, uh, quite frankly, if we work against COVID and we have a proof of concept and we get emergency use, uh, I don't have the bandwidth in a small company like ours to, to uh, promote it. So we either will do it through distributorships or someone's going to come up and, and buy it. Uh, you know, let's face it, if, if it works, uh, Big Pharma, you know, Pfizer's developing their own product. Uh, a friend of mine, Jean-Pierre Samadosi, who's the CEO and founder of a company called Atia, he also just signed a, a, a phase three deal with a big pharma company after showing a, a small molecule positive proof of concept. So uh, there will be a deal if, if, we, if we prove this to be correct. And I think, uh, Doug, that just about does it. Uh, we're about out of time. Um, I wanna thank our audience for listening. I hope you found this, this uh, discussion interesting. And I wanna thank Doug, uh, number one, for being an investor but also always offering some good advice and uh, for sticking with, with the company and sticking uh, with our management team. I really appreciate your time and agreement to do this for us. Thanks, James. I appreciate your uh, in information and keeping us abreast. Thank you very much and uh, talk to everybody soon.